If I had told you prior to today we were going to be covering an entire book of the Bible in one sitting, you would have thought I was crazy. Fortunately, this book is only one chapter, and enough that we can sit through it being read all together in one sitting. Can't do that with all of them. Good luck with Isaiah. But again, and we're not going to be mining this book exhaustively either, because there's a lot of wonderful things in here. But there are several important themes in this book that I feel will be great to address in the church. Um, and, and we're going to place our primary emphasis on those core themes. And those core themes can be boiled down to this, that the gospel, which is the light, the good news of the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ fundamentally changes everything. It changes our identities. It changes our relationships. And it changes how we, how we even live our lives as we seek to model what Christ has already done for us. So we're not going to be going verse by verse through the whole thing, but let's unpack what Paul has to say to us beginning again back in verse 1 that says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Epipha, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't help but to notice, and the church in your house. That was the norm back then, having house churches where you would actually meet in somebody's home because set aside buildings like this for worship, you know, that didn't come around for a few centuries. It just wasn't a thing. People would meet in people's houses to worship, and hence the church that meets in your house. And notice it says the church and the church in your house. He doesn't confuse his house for being the church because the church isn't the building, whether you have one like this or it's your home. The church is the people inside. All things that we know, the, um, the, the, the church gathers inside what we call church buildings today, but the church has always been and always will be the people. You know, this church, First Press South Amboy, we can move from here if we wanted to. We're not going to, but we, but we can because it's the people here that constitutes the church. But you'll also have noticed that many of Paul's letters are addressed to churches. You have the, he writes to the church that meets at Philippi, and now we have the book of Philippians from it. He wrote a letter to the church that is in Rome, and we now have the letter to the Romans. But here, Paul is writing and addressing this letter to a person, one of a couple of times that he does this to, where he writes to a person, This, in this case, a guy named Philemon. And this letter is actually very personal, as you might have picked up on. Verse 19 actually hints that Philemon became a Christian through Paul's ministry. And so no doubt there is a, a close connection here. I mean, just looking at verse the paragraph beginning at verse 4, you see this warmth that he has where he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have, that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints 
And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I mean, you hear that warmth coming off of this guy. He's praying for him and he's commending him for his love for Jesus, his love for the saints, thankful for the effective work that he's doing there. It's, It's just a beautiful thing. And out of this close relationship that we have, that Paul has with Philemon, I should say, it grants him the a springboard to make a very unusual request in verse 8, where he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, am now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. And I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Uh, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be out of compulsion, but by your own accord." For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Let's actually stop there for a second. Onesimus, we are told in verse 16 that he was a bondservant to to, to Philemon, a word that, let's be straight with it, could very well be translated slave. That's what the word means in a more straightforward English. Onesimus had run away from his master during that time and somehow encountered Paul the Apostle during his trial travels. He becomes a Christian, and now Paul is sending him back to Philemon, writing this letter with instructions for how to handle the situation. So with that in mind, we have to address this issue of slavery while we're on this point. Not because it's the main part of this text, but because people make this the central issue of this text. I mean, some people aren't going to hear a word that I say until we go through this, until we address head on what does this mean. Because yes, the Bible does contain slavery. And Onesimus is not being set free by Paul the Apostle. What gives here? Is Paul on the wrong side of history? Is the Bible advocating for sin? Does the Bible advocate for slavery? Well, no, I wouldn't say that at all. You see, the Bible does contain slavery, but please hear me on this, church. It doesn't contain American slavery. There's a difference. The atrocities experienced by our African-American brothers and sisters here in this country prior to the Civil War, that wasn't happening everywhere. Those were particular atrocities unique to the states um, that weren't taking place in Israel. In fact, in biblical times, we would have called it something much closer to what you and I might know as endangered servants back then. 
Because people would willingly, out of their own decision, decide to sell themselves into slavery for a multitude of reasons, such as to pay off a debt. You could arrange a particular time to pay off a particular debt that you had, or to make some large purchase that you couldn't afford in your own unskilled labor at the time. It was only unwilling if you incurred a debt that you could not pay, and now you're on the hook for it, which we actually see saw play out in some of our parables in Matthew. Furthermore, and very importantly, it was not race-based. It was available to anyone who wanted to take advantage of this social program, let's call it for what it is. It was basically a temporarily contracted job that they were actually compensated for. Imagine that, paying them. Very different, again, notice from, from the American experience. Some might remember how Jacob himself essentially sold himself as a slave to Laban for a number of years to, to purchase his bride because he couldn't afford the bride price coming out of you know, his situation back in the book of Genesis. So with that being said, one commentator actually said that it was better to be a slave than a runaway slave at the time. Because, again, one, you signed up for it, and two, the punishments of being caught were brutal in the Roman world back then. And, but they went, this commentator goes on to say, sometimes it was better to be a slave than a freedman. Because in the, in, in, again, first century Rome, you weren't guaranteed food, water, and shelter. <laughs> that, that, there wasn't social programs like we have today. Food stamps, forget about it. You know, but it, it didn't exist. You had to get the money from somewhere, and if you were a slave, you at least had that guarantee by whoever, whoever was taking care of you. And furthermore, most interestingly enough, slavery among God's people in Israel had term limits. They could serve for six years, but on the seventh year, all the slaves would be released. And if they wanted to go back into slavery on, on that seventh year, they were free to do so if they wanted to, but they were scot-free on that seventh year. Now, that doesn't mean that abuses didn't take place. I'm sure that took place, especially under Roman rule. And other nations back then had terrible practices, but God's people and placed in Israel, it was much different. It was actually what some people would consider quite fair. And frankly, you know, their system actually sounds better than some of the very broken parts of our American system. I looked up something quite fascinating before this. Uh, you guys are aware of the student loan crisis that are, is going through us. How I looked it up. The, the average rate that it's taking some kids to pay off their student loans is 20 years. Could you imagine being in debt for 20 years? graduating when you're still a kid and you're 40-something by the time that you get it paid off. Are you kidding me? Back then, your debts could be gone in seven years. It seems quite reasonable, actually, when you consider it. Something to think about. So again, these issues are complicated and there's a lot more to it. But all this brings in mind that the gospel doesn't leave this issue content as it is. It brings transformation to every person that it touches, including the people involved in this biblical narrative we're looking at this morning. Because something has changed 
since Onesimus had run away. He had become a Christian on on his journey. And as we're going to see, that changes everything about this narrative. First of all, it changes Onesimus. (laughs) Apparently, he wasn't a diligent worker before, being called useless in verse 11. But by the time verse 13 comes around, Paul says he would have been glad to keep him for the sake of his service in the gospel. His new faith had motivated him not to be passive, but to be active, to be useful. And by the way, there's a play on words here because the, the name Onesimus means useful. So there's a, there's, there's a cool little play on words here. Ah, before he was useless, but now he is useful. Almost as to say, hey, since he came to Christ, he now is who he was always called and meant to be. And that says something about our identity in Christ, doesn't it? You know, I don't know what your individual name means, but, you know, in Christ we are a new creation. And when you come to him and you believe the gospel, only then does God truly begin to mold you and change you into who you were meant to be in the first place. What God's plans ultimately are for you. But, you know, there's something to what Onesimus was prior in his uselessness. And because, look, that's a major problem in our world today. Theft is on the rise. And part of that is theft of company time, people not actually being engaged in the work that they say that they're going to be engaged in, not actually working when they're being paid to work. And and as Christians, we got to be aware, that's technically considered theft. As Christians, we're called, you know, if I'm on the company clock, I'm being paid for my time, my time should be dedicated to what I promised and agreed to do. Furthermore, Colossians 3.23 says to do whatever it is that we do, as if we are working for the Lord and not for men. We're called to set an example. We're called to shine in this generation. But yes, of course, on the other foot, there's plenty of other verses I could bring up that also say, hey, pay your people a fair wage and treat them kindly too. Yes, I get that, but I get one sermon to cover a whole lot of things here on a Sunday. But something to keep in mind, and unlike modern political theories, Paul doesn't mandate any of that. He doesn't mandate a change to Philemon or the system or his contract with Onesimus, but encourages Philemon in the gospel, hey, let's do the right thing. Don't, let, don't make me twist your arm on this. You're, you guys are both Christians now. Let's do the right thing between you two. But we'll come back to that point in a little bit. Furthermore, Onesimus' attitude towards work, yes, that's changed, but his identity has changed much more deeply. Paul says he is sending back his own heart, we read in verse 12, and that he is no longer a bondservant, but much but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. See, the gospel doesn't just change your attitude or your ethics. I mean, it changes your very relationships that you have. You know, there is no closer bond that you could possibly have than with another Christian. And that's not to downplay blood relationships. I'm just pointing out the importance of the spiritual ones that we do have. It's such a beautiful thing when you find somebody who shares your same values, who shares your same worldview, who shares your same savior, and to have fellowship with those people when you have the most important things in common. 
Wow, it's a difference. It's, and it's a difference that transcends all other man-made divisions or classes or whatever man-made separations that we make between ourselves. Because that's what was meant by our first reading this morning that declared boldly that there is no longer slave nor free. Did you catch that? But we are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's how a random runaway slave can become a brother of Paul the Apostle. What a beautiful thought that is. This is just the way that the gospel transforms relationships. And it's not done there. It changes relationships in our homes, in our own families. Not enough can be said about that. And furthermore, you know, that's, that's why this church is as warm and welcoming as it is. I mean, we say this all the time, right? This is where a church feels like home. And there's a reason for that. It's because our unity isn't on these surface level things. It's in something far deeper, a far greater uh, unifier that brings us together and gives us this this joy, this warmth, this familiarity with each other. Even if you're coming for the first time or if you're new to the church, it, you can feel that coming in here, meeting the people. Oh, how like this is just one big living room and we're all one family. Are there problems in this living room? Of course there are. <laughs> of course there's divisions. Of course there's arguments and pettiness and this and that. But I got a confession for you. That happens in my living room too. Because <laughs> we're a bunch of broken sinners there too. <laughs> if we're honest. But what gives us that unity, again, it's not our shared job experience, our family history, or how well connected we are in this small town where everybody knows everybody. It's our oneness in Christ that gives us that unity being part of the family of God. Furthermore, the gospel also transforms our outlook on the circumstances that we go through in this life. I love how verse 15 says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a, for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. You know, speculating, perhaps this is why this took place. No, we don't always know why things happen. But because we believe in a God who is sovereign, who is in control, who Romans 8.28 says, works all things together for good to those who love God. We can find meaning and we can find good even in the bad things that happen to us. We can trust that, hey, I can't make sense of what's happening to me, but I know that there's a God who can make sense of it. I know there's a God who's sovereignly working behind the scenes doing something. And I might ne never learn what that is on this side of eternity, but I trust that, it, that somehow it's all working out in his economy. So again, he's saying here, perhaps this whole thing was used by God for a greater purpose. 
This whole incident with Onesimus and Philemon, maybe God intended to use this to save Onesimus and give him and Philemon a far deeper relationship than they ever would have had had this experience not taken place. They never would have been brothers before this. You know, that ought to remind us, you know, God works like that all the time, taking something that maybe was even meant to be wrong, maybe meant to be evil. But God brings good purposes out of it and through it. That ought to remind some of us of Genesis 45, how that happened to Joseph in his life. How even though his brothers sold him into slavery, perhaps there's a parallel here. Or Joseph was sold into slavery. Definitely not a kind thing for his brothers to do. He was able to say, it was not you who sent me here, but God. God had a much bigger plan to save many lives in and through Joseph that he couldn't possibly have wrapped his mind around before. But he was able to look back on that, able to look on years and years of mistreatment and say, God, you're the one who sent me here and you brought greater good than I could have imagined through my pain. And that's, I think, normal in our experience. You know, somewhere around two, three weeks ago during our Bible study, we actually had a conversation about this. How we shared stories about how many of us have met God through deep and uncomfortable circumstances. How we shared our testimonies and saw, hey, look, we've been through some hard times, but God brought some great good through it in a beautiful way. And the lessons we learned, the experiences we've had, many of us wouldn't trade for the world. And that's just a piece of what God does. And the longer you walk with God, the the easier it becomes to, to trust him, to trust that, hey, there's a God out there who's working behind all of this. There's a sovereign plan behind it. Even if I can't make sense of it, I know it's there. And finally, the gospel transforms us to live the gospel to others. Again, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, well, what is the gospel? It's first, it's 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Which again, it's, it, it's where it describes this double imputation that takes place, this double exchange where on the cross, Jesus took all of my sins and everything that, and bore the punishment for them that I deserve to pay in his own body so that I could be set free from my sin because he paid the debt that I could not pay. And because Jesus had prior had lived a perfect and sinless life, when God looks at me, he no longer sees my brokenness, my sin, my shortcomings. Because of that exchange that took place, he sees the righteousness of Christ in me when he looks at me. Not my goodness, but Christ's. And now that is available for all who repent and turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord. Our sins paid for. And and this righteousness that is not our own is a gift that we can now receive. 
And now that we are Christians, having believed this, if you do believe that this morning, we now seek to live in a way that responds to what Christ has done for us, to respond to this gospel that saves us. And it's amazing the ways it just spills out of us. What I said will make more sense after we just briefly look at verse 17 that says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. So, do you hear the language here? Receive him as you would receive me? That makes sense out of that verse in 2 Corinthians, doesn't it? Sounds familiar. His debts are now my debts? Hold on, I've heard that before. It's just... It's just spilling out of him. He has so deeply embraced the gospel that it just comes out of him in his relationships to others, showing that same grace that's been shown him to others. I didn't know if I was going to share this or not, but I once heard it said that five years from now, you're going to be the same person that you are today, except for the books you read and the people you spend time with. Now, that could be a very encouraging or convicting thought. I don't know what your social circle looks like or what your bookshelf looks like. But hey, when you're, but the point of it is, hey, when your mind is captivated with the things of God, I'm not talking about legalistically going through the scriptures, but I'm talking about spending time with Him, meaningful time with Him, spending time worshiping Him, communing with Him through devotionals, through worship music, through Bible studies, through however it is that you meet with Him. Making and spending that time and allowing that time spent with Jesus to change you from the inside out. Because that's what happens. And the, the reason why the gospel just spills out of Paul is because of the amount of time he spends time thinking about Jesus, the time he spends talking about him, praising him, worshiping him, spending time with, uh, in fellowship with other Christians. So it gives him the, the, the ease of being able to share this just so naturally. Enough to say now to of, of this slave that he is sending back, you know, basically to say, as my identity is now in Christ, Onesimus now shares in my identity. What Christ has done for me, now let me do to him. Whatever debt he owes, charge that to my account. It's a beautiful thing. Again, likewise, as Christians, we have been forgiven so much. We have been shown so much grace that we should be able to share that with others. And I've said this a hundred times, and I'll say it a hundred more. If you really believe the gospel from the heart, it will transform you. It will change you in time. We've got to be careful not to set legalistic expectations of when it's going to change somebody or how it's going to change somebody, expecting somebody to have the same experience being transformed that I've had. People can get legalistic about that. That's not what I'm about here, but the point is it eventually will happen as it's done for so many others. Again, all of our journeys look different, but none of us are the same person we are now 
because then we were back then, if you will. And if I had another hour, you could share story after story through the scriptures of the people who have been changed. I think of Levi, who um, who was was a murderer. God tra- transformed him and his family to become God's tribe of priests as the Old Testament narrative unfolds. I think of John the Apostle, who was once known as one of the sons of thunder. That wasn't a clever nickname. He got that because he, because of the wrath that he had, him and his brother, uh, towards people on the outside, anger and hatred towards people. He later received another title. Some theologians call him the Apostle of Love because the love of Christ and the love that John would later embody just oozes out of his letters. And then there's Paul himself, author of this book of Philemon, the man who was once Christ's greatest persecutor became perhaps his greatest missionary of all time, taking the gospel to all the corners of the world at that at at that time in world history. It's amazing. And again, I can go on forever. The Bible is full of character arcs like that. Perhaps if we're honest with ourselves, this room could be full of stories like that if we were to open up and share our testimonies and our stories of how we could say, man, I'm not what I ought to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be, right? So the question is, how is God transforming your life? Perhaps more unsettling, are you being transformed by all of this? Do you have a a new identity as John, Levi, Peter, or Paul have? Are you becoming more loving, more joyful, more content, more peaceful, and having more patient the longer you walk with God? Or if you're not, why? What's hindering us? Why am I not becoming who I think I should be in Christ? Well, we got to ask two questions. One, am I hindering the Spirit's work in my life? Am, am, am I like some of the parables of the soils where, you know, I'm, I'm being, my, my, my spiritual life is being choked out by a desire for riches and a desire for other things. I'm, I've crowded out. There's too much going on in my life to make time for Jesus rather than us clearing the path and allowing us to enjoy him. You know, the whole series of the parables really apropos to that, but rather than preach a whole other sermon, I'll just put it to you this way. Some of us may have believed a counterfeit gospel, one that does not save, one that's perhaps only cultural, one that's, you know, I'm a Christian in name only, or I'm a Christian because I come to church. I'm a Christian because I, uh, my, my father was a Christian, or my mother was a Christian, or my great-grandmother was a Christian. It's like, eh, it doesn't work like that. Spiritual inheritances don't get passed down unless you're in the family and the family of God. So we got to be careful, you know, or, or we got we got to ask, you know, and do I ha- believe some cultural, intellectual, or corporate version of Christianity, or have I embraced the personal relationship from the heart that Jesus has invited me to experience? So with that question in mind, 
wherever we are, wherever we are in this stage of sanctification, becoming more like Christ slowly over time, let's seek to be like Onesimus. Let's seek to be transformed by the power of the gospel. Let our ethics be transformed as his was. Our relationships be transformed as his was. Our outlook on our circumstances, looking to the eternal for our peace. And even have the core of who we are become a new identity in Christ. Not looking to ourselves to bring that change, but looking for the spirit of God to bring that work as we simply abide in him. Thanks be to God. Amen.